and then you, you've got you know you've got these words like anatta sunya emptiness sunyata nibbana um, words that have no definition they all you know like or my one of my favorite quotes is from there's the unborn uncreated unformed unconditioned and uh, so I started contemplating that. Can I imagine? Can I? What is the unborn? Is something unborn? Can I imagine it? Can I create some kind of image of unborn, uncreated, unformed? And then you observe. Mind was observed. My mind goes blank. I can't think. Of, I can't create an image. The closest you can is like a zero or something. <laughs> but that's symbolic, you see. So, uh, just being observed, the unborn, uncreated, is, is, it stops your thinking mind. Because you can't conceive it. You can't create, create it into any form. It's, it's formless. But it's certainly recognizable to be aware of uh, like when you, you stop trying to figure it out and then there's just awareness that has no form to it but it's certainly conscious and intelligent it's not, you don't go become a zombie or a ghost and you're alert it's, your mind your, your mind is bright rather than dull and stupid so then and, and then it goes, there's the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. If there was not, there'd be no escape from the born, the created, the form, the condition. There'd be no way out of it. We're stuck in the samsara. No possible way to, to get out of it. It's the hopeless despair of repeating the same things over and over again. And then it goes on, because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there is the escape from the born, the created, the fallen. Well, those two, like you're taking the unborn and born, or created, uncreated and created, that, that helps you to discern it here. What's unborn, uncreated? And then your mind, your thinking mind packs up. So then you, you can often that oh, rubbish, I can't ignore it, this makes me confused. Or, if you bear with that, if you bear with that, eventually you're kind of sustaining this awareness around not knowing anything. And if you're patient with that, it will lead you to a very blissful state. It's unborn, uncreated. You didn't create bliss out of some practice or some kind of intentional you can't you can't you know you can't imagine you might have views about it but you can't create this this unborn but you can recognize it and this is what what mindfulness allows us to do and this is the whole whole kind of magnificent of Buddha's teaching is so simple so accurate but it, it 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 goes by people don't get it 
because we're we're very complicated. You know, we have complicated personalities, and emotional needs, and karmas, and all that. So, I mean, we're you know, it is to me very impressive that you're all here, willing to to do this. Something lumping in you has, has awakened to this dhamma, and and otherwise you wouldn't be here. And and then that is something to trust. That's what brings you to this monastery. And because uh, you know it's not an easy life, and you've got put up with all kinds of irritations, <laughs> but. But it is a form that that is deliberately constructed to help <coughs> help us, and it holds. Like I found, like it holds. It, I tended to can't be very, all of, you know, like you know, idealistic and and be scattered all over. You know, and just get so distracted and involved and caught up into so many options and opportunities that that I realized early on I needed to be be in a container that kept kept me from just going out all the time and of course here in Thailand when I met Bung Po Cha I mean this is this is where this is what I can you know this will probably help me because otherwise if I just try to do this all on my own I'll probably just get you know, the whole tendency, habit tendency was indulgence and and uh, distraction. And then, uh, so living within this strict denial structure, I didn't find it easy. Because you know, I don't, you know, emotionally, I'm used to just, I was used to doing what I want. But, Suddenly you're, you're kind of held down and can't do that anymore. But the point is you observe that, that frustration. It comes from having some something you you hit against. You know, you 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 have to either you you believe and and say to hell with it, or you you just conform within the structure and then and it's a moral structure, so it's not meant to be a kind of tyranny, or, or you know, you're not asked to do uh, harmful acts or violent acts. It's supposed to not act act on those emotions. So now, like I'm, you know, in my monastic life, it's kind of holding within that. Now it's like it's just second nature. It's not like I'm trying to keep the rules and uh, uptight around it and worry, but it's just like, you know, it's, it's the way I live. It's just ordinary. And then it is, it gives you a sense of, it, 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 it because it is a kind of blessing to us, it, to the world, you know, you really, like living in, in Europe for so long, you know, a Buddhist monk from Thailand going off and living in London sounds impossible. You know, from the way I would think, you know, because it's not a Buddhist country, a big international city and so forth, so you... But, 
in all those years, I've never had any, I mean, you know, there's never been any great problem from the external, from the government or the people there, and the four requisites have been abundant. And then they, then they, uh, uh, respect that people have. Even though a lot of people don't know what you are, what, but they, there is a sense of this form, that some of the form has a, maybe it's an archetype of sorts, you know, it has a resonating quality to it. So even in the countries like England or Italy or Portugal, you've got, you still see this, this kind of, even though people may not know what you are or what you're doing, they do have this sense of your, some kind of spiritual person or pilgrim on the path and there are ways of, of trying to define you but it's usually in a way that, that is quite respectful so you know it's like this discerning the unborn and the born it's uh, then, then the thinking mind wants to say, oh, the unborn is better than the born. And then we get into, that's a criticism, isn't it? It's better. That's, that's a critical point. Then you're thinking again. But the discerning, and this, this mindfulness, then allows us to discern the unborn is like this, and the born. Then we can, we can use the born, the created, the form, in terms of, you know, in skillful means, rather than, just blind reactivity, uh, habitual reactions to life. So like, Lumpacha, you know, he, when he saw this, then he, you know, he used to wonder why he, he started Wattpap home. You know, he could have, my idea was, that, oh, if I, had this inside, I would be off in some peaceful place. I don't want to bother with all this, the society and monks and nuns and all the problems that arise. And, and uh, and then, uh, <laughs> and I thought, Ajahn Chah, you know, out of compassion, was establishing, uh, you know, monasteries where I could go and, and, and listen and train with him. He didn't need it for himself, <laughs> but he was, you know, just using his, the remainder of his life and his, his, and the wisdom that he, he has to help other people to, to see the, and in Thailand, you know, where it is a Buddhist, is where Buddhism is so, you know, it's a dominant religion and, and it's part of a culture, so, you know, Cha was trying to, educate the Thai people and think, look, you've got this decision tool that you're not using properly. <laughs> <laughs> so he used to he used to scold the Thais all the time about all their superstitions and things and assumptions they have around Buddhism and so forth. And and this is what I found so inspiring was you know, here was somebody who actually he was informing people in this country what actually is the Buddhist teaching and what is not. 
and he wasn't saying that you'll go to hell if you don't you know if you believe in ghosts and all this and he's just saying that this is you know they're trying to awaken people to discerning the value of Buddhism because like a, an ancient religion like this gets you know over years becomes you know so many additions uh, you know it kind of absorbs other things and and so much of it it becomes even non-Buddhist and that's what Buddha Dasa in in uh, Sun Mo same thing when I was a young monk these were two powerful teachers in Thailand that were really clear and saying you know this is this is uh, and this is the path this is the what the Buddha thought the rest might be cultural or superstition, animism, or whatever. But, but he was very, you know, very direct and, and oftentimes very fierce with, with people you know, about that. Because he wants out of compassion to, to get people to appreciate what they have rather than just, I'm a Buddhist and you know, not really see what that, you know, the the gift that they have, then maybe they ignore and don't see, you know, see it as just part of a cultural habit. And it, that's where, you know, because Thai Buddhism really, because you know, Thailand was never colonized by European country, so Thai Buddhism, when I, when I, when I first went to, came to Thailand, you know, it was, Westerners just didn't know much about it. And, and then because it had never been colonized, they, you know, they never, you know, hardly any monks could speak English or things like this. So, so Westerner, non-Thai people coming into Thailand found it quite difficult because where Burma was the most logical place to go back in 1960 because the Burmese had been a British colony there's a lot of cultural exchange and a lot of people spoke English in Burma and there were meditation teachers and Sri Lanka also and uh, but when I when I came to Thailand and Burma was shut off you wouldn't couldn't go there anymore. I would have gone to Burma actually. But um, the government there, you know, became a real tyranny and and then you couldn't you admit, I think they'd give you a visa for a week back in 1966. <laughs> that was it. But so Thailand, you know, was the logical place to go. You know, and but it it, but hardly any Westerners knew anything about Thai Buddhism then, which has changed now. Is it? And so, what impressed me was you heard certain like expatriate people living in Bangkok for having views and opinions about Thai Buddhism. But from what I could tell, you know, even before I understood the Thai language. But you have these teachers like Buddha Dasa or Lumpa Chow. And they you know, they were they were teaching the, the real, you know, the direct approach. No mucking about, you know, it was 
And so, what better, what more could you ask? You know, you didn't have, they didn't ask you to believe in all the, you know, the cultural conditions and that. So it was, it was easy, you know, I found it easy to adapt on, on that level because I wasn't, you know, dealing with a lot of cultural things that didn't mean anything to me. I was dealing with suffering and its causes and the sensation all the time in my life at Wapnapal. And then, then I could, you know, I could use the traditional form and the Thai culture, you know, as it affected me. I could be aware of it rather than just dismiss it or blindly follow or, you know, just go along with everything without question or you know, forming my own opinions. I, you know, the direction was always observing rather than, than just putting up with things or going along with things or feeling you had to conform out of to be accepted and things like that. You can feel much more sense of this is something I can do, something of value. Speaking of anatta and going on letting go and these sorts of things, how do you, can you give some words of suggestions about self-discipline within that, without getting, you know, too worried about the, like, I really got to be a good chanter, I really got to learn my road, right? I see there's some importance there, but maybe you can talk about that, the importance of self-discipline as the path to not self. Well, like, the important thing is to be aware of you know, how you take the idea of self-discipline can be a, a form of tyranny. You know, I should be, and uh, one can be, a, you know, caught up in, in ideas, I'm not disciplined enough, I'm, or you, you become, you're trying too hard to be perfect, whatever. Or you've got views of, oh, that, Rubbish, you know, it's not important, just mindfulness is enough, there's some that's the other extreme. So then you, but my suggestion is observe. Whether, you know, you think it's rubbish, it's like this, or, or, uh, or you think, you know, it's obsessive and it makes you more tense and, and, uh, worried about everything, then, you know, you're observing. This is, grasping this by becoming obsessed with the form. But like in the early years, I mean, that's, you have to learn the form so you can let it go. <laughs> you have to, you know, you can't just, like, you know, you, you learn how to structure around you. That takes a certain amount of determination and discipline. And, and surrender to it. But that's not the end. It's merely you getting so that it becomes uh, something you can let go of because it's, it's, you've internalized it rather than just grasp the external form. Then you become more aware of how you, you know, how the thing and how Theravada Buddhism affects you or Vinaya or, or uh, there's various views and interpretations about what Buddha really taught or, uh, you know, how you should keep the Vinaya and things like this. So you come across, the, you know, in your life, you so many views and opinions. 
but uh, the important thing is to is to observe like like I determined that's just going to do it the way they do what about poem because that that seemed to you know that's what everybody agreed to there that's what Ajahn Chah encouraged in the monk so do it that way and so then uh, I developed that uh, but then, then other people come along and saying, "Oh, I mean, I really said you should do, shouldn't do this, should do that," and then, then you get into into arguments about it and doubts. But that's not the point, you know, to get it perfect, but to 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 get used to the the, the container, so that you, I I call it like internalizing it. Like when you learn to play a musical instrument, you know, you have to go through boring practice routines, da 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 da, da over and over. <laughs> or learning uh, to dance, you know, you've got to repeat these steps and and over and over till they till they internalize, they come naturally. And so it's it's. Uh, uh, you know, so then you, after a while, they just become the way you, you know, you don't have to think about what string do I pluck. <laughs> it just, you know, on a deeper level and just uh, on the material level. And that comes to, to practice, then, rather than to, you know, it's not something you're born with and know immediately from the day one how to play the piano, unless you're Mozart. <laughs> and then it, and that's what what I always felt with Lumpa Cha was, was, you know, he seemed so at ease with it within the container of the of the Vinaya, and it didn't seem a struggle, or he was completely relaxed within the structure and it was just natural so you didn't get the impression he was keeping any rules at all you know it wasn't like that was uh, and then like going to England the first time you know, I could see he could size up situations and adapt to to particular contingencies that arose that he might never encounter here in Thailand but because it was done through mindfulness rather than through, it's got to be like this or, you know, it's wrong. So it's interesting to see somebody like that who's so admired here in this country. You know, we spent the week before we came to London in Bangkok and then all these people coming to see him and bowing and, and everybody, the Thai culture, so polite, so graceful, so, uh, you know, devoted. And I thought, that's not how it's going to be in London. <laughs> so, so, we go from Bangkok to London, and then, and I just, I, just, I was really impressed the way he could, he'd tune in, he'd observe, he'd observe how the English did things, or he was quite interested in, in getting to know. You know. He doesn't try to make everybody do it his way. So he had a certain kind of grace and 
and, uh, and you know, greatly admired, even though he couldn't speak English. People thought, you know, people that came really developed kind of overnight a kind of trust and respect for him. It's a Years ago, I was at Tamsang Patton and, and Ajahn Chah and I were walking on top you know, of the hill and, and he was saying, Sumedho, uh, you must be confused, because uh, the Dhamma is all about letting go and Vinaya is about singing. And so, I, yeah, I do find that a paradox. <laughs> And so, and then, uh, he said, well, when you, when you figure that one out, you'll be okay. <laughs> and this, this is an important thing, you know, because it's, they're like, form is this way. Like, Vinaya is all about form, containment, restriction. And Vinaya, and Dhamma is about letting go everything. You know, no form. Unborn, uncreated. And yet, when the Buddha was, before he passed on, you know, Kananda said, What do we do without our teacher when you're gone? Who does I leave you, Dhamma and Vinya? So, and it, this, uh, he didn't say just Dhamma, he said Vinya also. Now, this, I find it like in the, in the West, people aren't really interested in the Vinya, but in the Dhamma. This is one of the problems living there, I found, was was they love Dhamma, but they don't, you know, the Vinaya is something that they, you know, they go along with, but they don't really understand it, or really even some, you know, find even five precepts a struggle. <laughs> or I think they don't even need five precepts, you know. Dhamma is about letting go, being free, and so forth. So it, it you know, there's that. That's what people love in Dhamma. Because it is, it's beautiful. It, it, you know, it has this sense of not being bound and contained and restricted and bound into forms and rules and traditions and religions and all these things that people are very critical of now in the West. And this idea of freedom, express yourself, do what you want, is very attractive option, but then where does it go, you know, where does it stop, and so then the, the form, uh, you know, you got this, this, and this is a traditional form, it's not a form that is up for option, you know, for negotiation, you know, we, I don't like these rules, I just change them kind of thing, it's, it's like you, when you join the club, you go, you have to, this is the Categorical imperative, you know. This is what is a, what you have, what you expect. They're not negotiable. So, so then, that in some way, that, that makes our life much more easy because if we end up try to negotiate on that level, there's no end to it. It's just always this person's view and that person's feelings, and 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 we just go on and and on and create endless uh, problems with each other and with the tradition and with various individual preferences and ideas. 
So, what we do, you can get accused sometimes of being old-fashioned, or, you know, some, I've been accused of being attached to tradition, of being, you know, here I'm supposed to be free from attachment, and Ajahn Sumedho's attached to the Thai forest tradition. Some people think that. So, and that might how it, how they might how they might see it, you know, because in the way they think and, and interpret life. That, uh, but my experience has been that that it, um, you know, it it is a it, I see it as a kind of precision tool if used properly. And that's why I don't, I don't want to change it. You know, I don't want to make it British or American or, you know, Western Buddhism. And it's, it's got its point. It's a tradition that has managed to survive up to this moment. And, and so it must have a power within it. Otherwise it would have been changed all over the place. Like in Buddhism, you know, like in, in England. You've got every variation on the theme of Buddhism there. You know, if you don't like this, there's other options, you know, other groups. And there's Zen, and then there's Tibetan, and there's modern psychotherapeutic Buddhism, and Vipassana without Buddha, and things like that. There's everything, all kinds of alternatives and options on the theme. So, you know, it's, this is why you know I feel very committed to trying to keep this this within the the tradition to make it available for those who see you know want to use it and see it because there's there's so many other you know I see you know like the, the Vipassana movement in the states is you know the you know, it has a, a certain, you know, the certain admirable things about it, but it doesn't have that precision to it. It doesn't cut clearly through the ego. And if you, you know, like they're talking about the three fetters, and, and that it's really these three fetters, you can come from very good intentions, wanting to, you know, the best for everybody in the world, and and practice to, as a bodhisattva, to help all sentient beings. But it still can be operating from the three feathers. So, so in this way, it you you actually going to the to the feathers, the obstructions, right off, right from the beginning. Not to annihilate, but to understand them, so that they're not confusing you or blinding you. And once you, you really see through those, because they're, they're artificial things, they're, like sexual desire is not artificial, it's part of nature, the nature of the body, or anger, self-preservation, uh, this is part of the package of being a human being, being a mammal, learning to survive. It's, it's just is not created by human society. But the first three fetters are all creations of society, 
of you know white languages and cultures and tribal people, Muslims, Hindus, Christians, the whole lot. You know, there's this, these are created by human thought, human ideas. They're not given to us in nature. Your body's a natural condition. You know, so it, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it is, the human body is, is a part of me. Consciousness is natural. It's not, it's, you don't create consciousness through culture. So you, you've got consciousness and the body as just part of nature. This realm here, this earth, this planet, the trees and the mountains and the oceans and so forth. And, all the animals and the mosquitoes and the birds and whatnot, we're all involved in this in this sense realm of feeling natural conditions that is what we call nature. It's it's not created by any individual. But the self is created by human human uh, ignorance and desire and uh, culture and social identities and thinking. Thinking is a creation. <clears throat> so then, like in the West, you, you know, you find they develop the thinking process to a high level, the logic and reason and the intellect using these various forms of intelligent thinking, reasonable thinking, logical thinking, scientific uh, you know, which is very impressive, but it's still created by human beings that have not awakened to Dhamma. They might be brilliant, you know, on that level, but it's still, still, uh, it's like if you feel about the Brahmasa Vichikita. So in this, in this, this uh, direct approach to the Buddha, you know, he gives very clear directions, you know, do this, so it's, you know, you're you're not trying to attack the ego or get rid of your sense of self. It's your understanding it, and that understanding is not ego. You know, this this which is aware of my ego is not ego. But I can't if I say I'm aware or I'm mindful or something, then it can becomes ego. So you don't say anything, but you recognize, you discern this. The state of just being present and in this wide spectrum of awareness, where it's not concentrated on any object, but just open and receptive in the moment. Even though that's a natural state, but we, you know, our societies tend to always make us focus on something, to you know, to engage in something or other, some object. So we, you know, we don't we don't really appreciate this, this mindful satisampatanya. We have samadhi, you know, like we learn to concentrate the mind on on a reading or on some object, but to just not be concentrated on an object, but concentrated in this more wide open way is satisampatanya, and that's where. The, the discerning ability of Panya operates. Now that's important, it's like the thinking mind is a critical function, so it says this is 
good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is higher, lower. But this is, but this Satisambhatanya, uh, Panya, is not critical. Uh, so you use this discerning. It knows the difference between self and non-self. There's a knowing. Self is like this, non-self, anatta is like this. Or uh, worldly attachment, samsara is like this, nibbana is like this. You discern, you discern the difference. And it's not saying nibbana is better. That nibbana is like this. And then you, you can see, like, samsara is, uh, if you attach to samsara, then you get whirled away into the momentum of, of those cycles. So when you begin to see the result of being just being heedless and caught into that, then you, you know, you, you, you determine, oh, there's no point in doing that anymore, I know better. Because sometimes in monastic life we, you know, we want to be good monks and we have ideals of being, you know, content with little and, and, uh, and keeping the Vinaya properly and, and we have these are ideals of, of monastic life and then you know then you can be sometimes feel you know hopeless because you can't live up to these ideals all the time you can't be as good as you imagine you should be so we can take the ideal of bhikkhu life of monasticism and attach to the ideal of it and then create misery for ourselves because we, we feel guilty about a greed for food or sexual desire or anger or jealousy and things like this. We, we shouldn't have that. I'm not a very good bhikkhu because I'm jealous or greedy. And I mean, then we create these judgments about ourselves. Or, because I, you know, I remember in the old days some of the Western monks used to idealize the bhikkhu the point where they couldn't actually do it anymore because they were always failing. They could never, you know, be as good as they felt they should be. So they gave up. Where, uh, you know, I, I, I could see, you know, I can't, I, I, you know, I'd like to be the best and a really good monk and have unlimited compassion for all beings. I mean, on the ideal level, this is, this is beautiful stuff. But in the Vipaka come at the moment, sometimes it isn't like that at all. It's like, you know, a very selfish, very negative attitude, feelings arise, fears. But this is where, you know, your whole conditions are impermanent. And so you, you realize everything part, you know, is this for the middle, whether it's good or bad high or low, ideal or not. And so then you you find your confidence in this awareness that you investigate.